Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Igor D'Souza. He is a full-time lecturer at Yale University. He is also the Director of Undergraduate Studies in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Yale University and Associate Research Scholar in Judaic Studies at Yale University. We are here today to discuss his new book, Rewriting Maimonides, Early Commentaries on the God of the Perplexed, published in Berlin by de Gruyter, 2018. Igor, I'm tremendously lucky to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for having me, Ari, and hello to all the listeners. Thank you. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? I grew up in Brazil. Uh, I grew up uh, moving around a lot. My family, my father had a, a kind of job that required us to move around a lot. So from early on, I was exposed to different contexts, different cultures within Brazil, different people. And I left and I went to study in uh, at university in the United States. Um, I went to the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And when I was there, I started, uh, this is the formative event that you reference. I was a philosophy student who was becoming interested in religion. And um, I felt that there wasn't a place for both of those things in a traditional philosophy department. And as a way into this kind of study of philosophy and religion, I started reading The Guide, in part, The Guide of the Perplexed, in part because of my own religious questions, but uh, also because uh, what I had read about The Guide was that it provided some kind of different way of thinking about religion from a philosophical perspective. And so what impacted um, me was that one summer when I was an undergraduate student, I decided to focus on the guide in a very methodical way. And every day I read two or three, sometimes four chapters of the guide and no more. And I kind of thought about what I had read. I researched about it. I wrote about it a bit. And then the next day I would go on and read a little bit more. And I did that over the course of an entire summer. Um, And by the end of the summer, I was a bit of a different person. I can truly say that this book changed me. And Mm -hmm. it stayed with me uh, ever since. And that was... um, over 20 years ago. So I think it it did something. <laughs> what inspired you to engage in this project? 
what message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, I I was inspired because of of this experience of going through the guide, uh, which was a transformative experience. And so when I came to graduate school, um, I first thought, well, I'm going, no one cares about the guide, so I'll just study biblical commentary instead. And my advisor at the time said, no one has been looking at commentaries on the guide and you like commentaries, so why don't you think about that? And I did think about it and, and then I ended up writing a book about it. And I think that one of the interesting things is that looking at these quite early commentaries um, gave me the impression that a text, any text is not fixed. That it's a, that a text is in an ongoing conversation, um, and this is certainly the case for the guide. In the guide, Maimonides uh, writes in a style where it's a conversation between him and and the reader, and these commentators, which are who are the object of my book, they're in conversation with Maimonides. And as I'm working through the commentaries, now I'm involved in a multi-person conversation between myself and the commentator and the Ramba, Maimonides. Um, and so that would be one of the things that I would hope that people would get out of this book, is that there are so many ways to engage with a textual source, no matter what it might say on the surface, that there are deeper meanings to be brought out, to, to be brought to light, uh, to be developed out of that source. What are the primary themes in this book? What arguments does your book advance? Um, so one of the themes is of this multiplicity of voices uh, that we see here. And the argument perhaps would be a bit of a reaction to um, to the way in which Maimonides is studied today. Um, the guide has always been quite a controversial book and a divisive, uh, polarizing kind of book. And scholars get into very entrenched positions regarding what they believe Maimonides really meant to say what the guide is really about. And what I would wish that people get out of this book is that there are, there can be multiple Maimonideses, multiple Rambams, that there's a, there's an, a joke that says that uh, you have, you know, I have my monitus, uh, you have your monitus. I don't know if you get what I mean. Of course. Okay. Yes. Uh, everyone has their own my monitus, right? Uh, and it's a joke because we think, well, that's a little bit maybe verging on the absurd, maybe. Uh, but I think it's, it, it's, uh, precisely uh, the what makes for the richness of this tradition, that different people can come to this book and come out of it with entirely different conclusions about what it means to say. Mm. Uh, no one has a monopoly on the guide of the perplexed. And studying the commentary tradition, you see how different readers 
um, adapt the book for their own purposes. They bring their own background into their interpretation. Um, <clears throat> they all have different agendas. And that is not an anomaly. That I think is, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's what makes this tradition so dynamic and makes it so that the conversation is never finished. Um, no one is going to close the book and say, from now on, finally, we have figured out what Maimonides meant to say. I think that would be a terrible disservice to the guide if that actually happened. And I can, you, you can bet that if someone said that, many people would rise up and say, well, I disagree. I, you have your Maimonides and I have my Maimonides. Mm -hmm. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, I hope that listeners, that I can give a little bit of a sense of the, of the richness, of the diversity of this tradition, uh, of the multiple possibilities that a text like The Guide can have. Um, and I wish, I hope that readers can also see that the idea of tradition and Jewish intellectual history is not something static. It's not a stable thing, that it's a dynamic kind of thing, that traditions come into being and traditions also cease to exist, uh, that there, there is something uh, such as a new tradition which these commentaries certainly represent about the guide. In your perspective, should we think about Maimonideanism or Maimonideanisms, plural? Should we speak of Maimonideanism in the singular or Maimonideanisms in the plural? This is an interesting question because um, I worked or, or, or with with two scholars who've written uh, books with with those titles. So one was the Cultures of Maimonideanism, um, which was by uh, Carlos Frankel, and the other was Traditions of Maimonideanism by James Robinson. And I might here be getting the scholars switched, so you should look that up uh, in later in detail uh but that shows that the the those titles show some awareness of diversity within a global thing called maimonideanism right in the singular so the advantage of doing that is to say well there is a stable core a stable set of assumptions that we can point to and say this is what characterizes maimonideanism period okay uh, and other things perhaps that don't other texts authors that don't share those set that set of assumptions maybe they fall outside of what we might say maimonideanism in the singular okay so there's an advantage there because you'll be able to recognize maimonideanism okay by drawing attention to that set of assumptions or concerns. However, if you speak of Maimonideanisms 
in the plural, then you really draw attention to diversity and to connections to Maimonides that may diverge from some of his central assumptions, but which are still connected to the guide of the perplexed in some fashion, okay? Um, and speaking of Maimonidianisms in the plural implies that there is no real gatekeeper here, that uh, there are different forms, there are different approaches to the guide of the perplexed, to the study of the guide, to interpretations of the guide, okay? Um, even if some of those interpretations might depart from some of the ground assumptions that Maimonides lays out in his text. What were the five stages of commentary on and interpretation of the God of the Perplexed? Okay, so this uh, is a good foundational question. Um, until I took on this study, this the entire tradition of commentaries on the guide was uh, relatively unknown. We knew more about some commentators next to nothing about others, and there was no idea about the main contours of, of this huge body of work. So what I did was organize um, the mass of commentaries into five main branches <clears throat> that are chronological and secondarily geographical. So the first one, the first stage of these commentaries uh, begins in the 13th century and it extends so uh, a little bit after the Hebrew translation of the guide in 1213, uh, we start seeing the first commentaries up to Moses of Narbonne, who died in 1362. So that is the first phase and the first stage that's centered in Spain and France and Italy. The second stage is, uh, in, my, in my narrative of this tradition, centers in Spain in the late 14th and the 15th centuries up to the expulsion. Uh, from Spain, of the Jews from Spain. And here is the time when the so-called classical commentaries on the guide appear and eventually are also printed. So the first edition, printed edition of the guide was printed in 1480 in Rome. It already had commentaries attached to it. Um, and these are the commentaries of Profiat Duran, of Asher Crescas, of Shemtov Ben Joseph Ibn Shemtov. Uh, if you buy a printed edition of the guide with commentaries, you will see those uh, around the page uh, in a format that looks like a Talmud, Talmudic page. So the text of the guide in the middle, the commentaries around the side. Uh, so that's the second stage. The third stage, which is in Spain and Italy and in the Levant in the Near East, um, is what follows the expulsion from Spain uh, called in Hebrew the Yehush Sparad. And it, the expulsion disrupted what had been a steady popularization of philosophical learning in Spain. Um, and so in this third stage, 
we see still a study of the guide, but now uh, whatever philosophy there is in the guide is for these new for these commentaries of the third stage. It's clearly secondary to theological considerations, and we can understand why because the expulsion of Spain was such a huge trauma uh, in uh, around the Mediterranean Mediterranean Jewish communities, and so. <clears throat> these commentators tend to emphasize more the theological approaches of Maimonides. Uh, and when they do inquire into his philosophical basis, which, which they do, uh, they tend to say, okay, we study philosophy not for its own sake, but for the sake of learning more about theology and about theological um, concepts. The fourth stage is in Ashkenaz, and it's in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it's not widely known that uh, there was a what I call a controlled absorption of philosophical learning into Ashkenazi culture in these centuries, the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, invariably, this philosophy that filters into Ashkenaz um, comes through the guide. It comes also through Moses of Nabon's commentary on the guide. Um, and the commentators of this fourth stage tend to harmonize the guide with rabbinical Judaism, with rabbinical writings, which is something that had not been done before, uh, but which was, of course, the intellectual center of Ashkenazi uh, culture at, at the time. And so uh, figures like Mordechai Yafe and Yom Tov Lipman Heller, uh, they study the guide and Moses of Nabon's commentary. They're interested in Maimonides. They are not so familiar with Aristotelian philosophy. Um, and so where it, that philosophy does appear in the guide, they tend to read it through the prism of rabbinics. The fifth stage is uh, represented by one commentary, which is the commentary of Salomon Maimon in Germany. And uh, the commentary is called the Givat Hamore, and it provides a basis for the study of philosophy in the environment of the Haskalah of Jewish enlightenment. Um, and the basis that it provides uh, within the Haskalah is uh, the following. It says that we don't need to look at German models to do philosophical work because we have already antecedents within Jewish, medieval Jewish tradition that we can take from to cultivate science and philosophy. That's the main message of the Givat Hamore. And so when it's printed, it's printed with Moses of Nabon's commentary. And that's one of the main sources for the Givat Hamore. And, and so it provides uh, an alternative to the idea that Jews should really abandon, um, and I'm flattening the picture here, uh, to, provides an alternative to the idea that you should abandon uh, traditional Jewish learning 
to focus on, uh, say, Kantian philosophy. Okay, um, Maimon's commentary says, no, you don't. You you don't have to abandon Jewish learning to do that. Okay, you can still continue with the medieval tradition while also incorporating this new element of Kantian philosophy. To what degree did the thinkers you present here read and interpret the guide of the perplexed as literature? In what ways did they embody what Leo Strauss alludes to as the quote-unquote literary character of the god of the perplexed? Um, so this is a very good question because the commentators that are looking at the guide, the earliest commentators, their approach is not just what does Maimonides have to say about X, okay? That would be an approach of someone who is writing a treatise uh, would, would take. Here we are dealing with a more, let's say, conservative or traditional approach of commentary, which is focused on the text. And so when they're writing commentary and they look at a certain passage, their purpose is not merely to say, what does Maimonides mean to say in this passage? But it is also equally as important, why does he say this thing in the way that he does? What is um, the Maimonidean thinking behind this particular phrasing, okay? And that's a very, what I would argue is a very literary approach because you are not simply delving into the philosophical and theological implications of some statement. You're asking a question about the language of this statement and why it was written the way that it was written. That um, makes these commentaries literary. I think it's not a coincidence at all that Strauss uh, mentions Ibn Kaspi's commentary in passing, not in great detail, in his uh, persecution and the uh, art of writing, because uh, I believe that he saw something here that I think is really the fact uh, that the commentators are puzzled, in fact, by uh, the literary um, the literary aspects of the guide, the purposeful use of contradictions uh, is one example, or when Maimonides says things and uh, like know this, understand this, and then he doesn't say exactly what the this means, okay? Um, and it's up to the commentator to figure that out. Uh, Ibn Kaspi, for example, is very interested in knowing why does Maimonides give you some sorts of itemized lists? Um, of, of things, what does he mean to do by that? Is there some kind of deeper message here? Um, all of these commentators, and, I, and to different degrees, and they focus on different literary aspects of the guide, but all of them are concerned with how the guide is written and not just what message it is trying to vehiculate. And I'm creating here a distinction between the two things. In, in essence, they're the same. The way that the guide is written says something about what it's trying to say. However, they do focus very much on the level 
language. And that's, in my view, what makes these commentaries literary and not just philosophical or scientific or Kabbalistic or what have you. How is prophecy or quote-unquote prophecy understood by the thinkers you present in this volume? That's a good question also, and it's going to vary uh, depending on the commentator. Um, one example that I can give you is Ibn Falakera in his More Hamore, the uh, Guide to the Rebellious, uh, or you might literally read it as Guide to the Guide. Uh, although Ibn Falakera says that's not what I meant. I meant it as Guide to the Rebellious based on a biblical proof text. And there he says, the content of prophecy and the content of philosophy is not different. What differs is the way in which the prophet acquires that knowledge, okay? So that, that method in which the prophet acquires knowledge is not the same as the method in which the philosopher or the scientist acquires knowledge. For the philosopher or the scientist, it's a gradual process of acquisition of knowledge. For the prophet, it's an instant, it's more intuitive. Okay, it's coming uh, in the traditional framework. It's coming directly from God. Um, and so it, it can be acquired in a different way. And the other difference is how the prophet speaks and how a philosopher speaks. Even if the message, uh, the content might be the same, they are going to employ different styles. Um the prophet has certain ethical and political obligations to the listeners, to the readers that the philosopher or the scientist does not share. And so that is going to make a difference there. Um, so one of one example here is the saying that the Bible speaks in the language of human beings, which is a saying that comes from Abraham ibn Ezra in the early Middle Ages that is then taken up again by Moses of Salerno, our earliest commentator in this book. Um, that means that the prophet is going to speak to a much wider public. Uh, that's the nature of prophecy. Uh, it's not prophecy to only some, it's prophecy to the group as a whole. Um, and so the ways in which that prophecy is going to be phrased are different from how a philosopher would transmit their conclusions uh, of whatever they have discovered. What does your group, what does your book teach us about the justification of group beliefs? I was intrigued when I read this question that you sent to me in advance. And I'm intrigued because uh, Ibn Kaspi is what comes to mind here. And he has a particularly radical interpretation here. Um, as we might, as some of your readers or some of your listeners might know, um, the, the the guide is a book that does not seek to reveal itself completely to every single reader. It's filled with contradictions. It also identifies those contradictions in the Bible. 
And so when Ibn Kasbi is talking about those biblical contradictions that the guide talks about, he mentions that there are biblical statements that are completely, um, that cannot be squared up with each other. They are completely contradictory. That's what Maimonides calls the seventh cause of contradiction, meaning that there is a real serious contradiction here. One example of that is the idea that um, the parents will be punished for the sins of the children on the one hand, and the other side of that contradiction is that the parents will not be punished but for the sins of their children, or the children will not be punished for the sins of the parents, excuse me. Uh, those things are in contradiction. Uh, one says, okay, they, they each say very different things. And so Ibn Kaspi, when it comes to group beliefs, um, justification of group beliefs, which was your question, he says, well, one of those is true and the other is not, okay? But both are there so that we do not create a social disruption of, of group belief. Because group belief is important for social cohesion for all kinds of reasons. And so um, a, a better example would be the idea that God might repent from some action versus the idea that God never changes uh, the mind, never changes their mind, okay? He says, well, if we told people that once God makes a decision, that decision is never changed, then they would not repent. They would not uh, give sadaka, uh, charity, okay? They would not pray because... It's all about God's decision, and you, you cannot do anything about it, okay? And that would destroy religious practice. That would destroy group, uh, group belief, okay? But it is important to have that because it is necessary for the group as a whole. It's also necessary for individuals to have such beliefs. They might not be able to get through the world without such beliefs. That's Ibn Kaspi's point, okay? And so we keep both uh, statements. We say that it is true that God does change their mind, that God does repent and change his course, even though as readers of the guide, as uh, as philosophers, we know that's not the case, but we do not say that to the group openly, okay? So some people might say, well, that's some form of dissimulation, that's maybe bordering on hypocrisy, whereas others might say, well, okay, there is a social function to religion here that really needs to be preserved, even sometimes at the expense of, of a deeper truth, at the expense of a certain part of the text. How do the thinkers you present in this book differ from one another? How did their interpretations of Maimonides reflect their distinct cognitive worldviews? 
their distinct contexts, their distinct personalities. I have a, uh, I think what is a good example for this, and these are the two, two of the earliest commentators. One is Moses of Salerno, and the other is Rachia Hen. They both lived in Italy around the same time in the 13th century. Um, and they have completely different relationships to their environment. And the way in which they relate to their environment then makes a big difference in what kinds of things they choose to comment on and on the manner of their interpretation. One, uh, one way to flesh this out a little more is to say Moses of Salerno was uh, working at the court of a Christian king, king of Naples and Sicily, and he was reading the guide and studying the guide with a Christian scholar uh, whom he names in the commentary as Nicola da Giovinazzo. Uh, was, I believe, a Dominican scholar. I'm not entirely sure on that. But in the in Moses of Salerno's commentary, you see the, the influence of scholasticism, of contemporary um, Italian philosophy as it was being done in the peninsula. Um, you see that in the mouth of the Christian scholar that conclusions, scholastic ideas about God um, about prophecy, um, about how to read scripture, they come out into the commentary, right? So that's Moses of Salerno. Zerach Yachen is very different. He moves from Spain to Rome, so not so far from where Moses of Salerno is, and he is completely closed off to, to the environment around him. He is living... Um, in this, at the same the same time uh, as Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274, Zerachiachem dies after 1291, as far as we know, and so it it's very conceivable that Zerachiachem, you know, you would have thought he would have at least been familiar with such a towering figure uh, of of Italian philosophy of the time. He shows zero interest in anything outside of uh, Spanish Jewish sources of Maimonides, of Judeo-Arabic works, of Arabic philosophy. Zerachiachen is really not interested in Latin philosophy at all. And so his commentary is going to feel and look as if it was written in Spain and not in Rome, where he had relocated, um, the choice of topics, the way in which he writes, uh, even his style, is closer to someone like Ibn Falakera than it is to Moses of Salerno, even though both of these thinkers are living in proximity to each other at the same time um, under similar environments. So I think that goes a little bit of a ways to show how um, commentators can have uh, very different perspectives depending on their own individuality on their own agendas. Can you comment on your own 
personal positionality in engaging these particular thinkers. What unique insights and perspectives do you bring to thinking about these texts as you interpret them in your own life context? Um, I was very interested and still am uh, in Strauss's approach to the guide uh, to come out of the closet, so to speak. I'm a full-on Straussian. Um, and that is perhaps the uh, launching pad for the way in which I look at these texts. That they not only identify multiple levels of, of the guide, the commentators themselves write in multiple levels. They mimic this language that Strauss identifies in the guide as being directed to different kinds of audiences. They employ some of the same literary features that we find in the guide um, to explain the guide, okay? Mm -hmm. So I find that very interesting, this process of um, not only commenting on another source, but even absorbing the language of that source to talk about that source, okay? It's so reflexive. Um, it's in the, it shows, from the commentator's perspective, it shows an, a, an independence to, towards the source text, but also a fidelity to it. Okay, independence because, as I mentioned, the commentators all have very different agendas uh, and different purposes for reading the guide. But the fidelity, the faithfulness to the text comes in the reproduction of its language, uh, of its uh, style. Uh, of some of its of the assumptions that underlie uh, its language, and I find that extremely interesting as a creative act. Okay, it's a creative act that is innovative, but also anchored in the past. It's also anchored in the source. Um, it's a way of creating uh, what I mentioned before, a new tradition. It's both traditional and it's new. Um, and I, in my own life, I find that quite interesting. Um, and here, perhaps more of a biographical thing, you know, I am um, out gay Jew. Um, and this idea of creating a new tradition to me is very appealing, right? Uh, on the one hand, I want to remain connected to my own tradition. I do not wish to abandon it. Uh, but I do wish to create something new within it and using its language to create something new. Um, and that's part of, of um, that's a big part, in fact, of how I think of myself and how I live my life. Earlier on, you alluded to Moses of Salerno, and there's actually a passage uh, where you write as follows about him in your book. Uh, you, you write as follows, the lack of a formal prologue or preface is significant. It is very rare for medieval Jewish commentaries of any stripe to lack a prologue. 
and even many translations contain one. The lack of a prologue is all the more remarkable given the short span of time between the Hebrew translation of the guide and the composition of the commentary and the attendant need to introduce a relatively unknown text to the public. A preface becomes all the more necessary given the fact that there were no other commentaries on the guide. As an exegete, Moses of Salerno not only introduces the guide to readers of the commentary, but he also ushers in a new genre of its own, and in the absence of any explanation, it can be concluded that Moses of Salerno was likely prevented from writing a prologue as well as from completing the commentary by his death, although we cannot exclude the possibility that he simply abandoned the project in media res. The commentary is unlike any other on the guide. Moses of Salerno paraphrases much of the text, and he also reproduces lengthy passages of the text verbatim. It is unclear precisely what purpose such quotations served, but the comprehensive character of the commentary might imply that it was meant to be copied in place of the guide itself. Can you say more about this passage? Can you go into more detail about what you're alluding to? Yes. Uh, the issue here is the Moses of Salerno's commentary, there are quite a few features about it that we don't really understand. And the dominant feature that I'm drawing attention here is that it doesn't have a prologue or an introduction of any sort. It just starts. Um, there's just a brief paragraph in the beginning that says who the author is and that it's going to speak about this book and that's it. And that's very unusual in the 13th century when um, almost anything that um, medieval Jewish thinkers were writing would have a preface. Okay, It was itself a kind of a new form, uh, an innovation, but it became quite universal very fast. Um, and so his commentary does not follow that. It doesn't have a preface. It ends abruptly. It doesn't really end at the end of the guide. It doesn't have any anything else to it. It doesn't have a conclusion, nothing. And so the question has come up in scholarship around this commentary is why is there no prologue here? Um, Giuseppe Sermonetta, who was a scholar of Italian Jewish um, letters, Italian Jewish culture, he suggested that perhaps this commentary was meant to be a draft or uh, a preliminary work to a translation of the guide into Italian. And there are a lot of Italian words, uh, Italian translations in this commentary. Um, when there's some problematic term or something like that, uh, Moses of Salerno then might give you the Italian equivalent for that. And that's what made him perhaps think that. Uh, but even a translation would have a prologue, um, as in uh, Moses, uh, Samuel Ibn Tibon's translation of the guide, for example, and other translations had prologues. So, there's a question there about it. And because it sort of ends abruptly, 
it was it has been suggested that okay maybe he died in the middle of the commentary and he couldn't finish it um or perhaps he just sort of left left it aside and abandoned it we are not really sure what i can say about it is that um because of all of these italian translations uh which begin to circulate independent of the commentary by the way um that this work was should be seen in the framework of a Jewish Christian dialogue that proceeded on the basis of philosophy that dealt with theological issues, but that could be sometimes polemical and not just collaborative. Okay. And so for the purpose or for the for the benefit of Italian Jews, these translations found in his commentary circulate uh, outside of the commentary. Um, his son, uh, Isaiah Ben Moses of Salerno, uh, is the one that edits the commentary, gathers these translations, circulates them independently. Um, all of this is evidence that there was active conversation between uh, Christians and Jews, not just about religion in general or Judaism, but about the guide, okay? That they found it helpful to have Italian translations to some of these terms. Um, and that is quite interesting. It shows that the guide is not a book that's just interesting for Jews. Um, Strauss is the one that introduced the idea that uh, the guide is a book written for Jews. Uh, this seems to sort of differ from that. Uh, and, and, and this example might be saying that uh, the guide can be a site of interconfessional discussion, um, sometimes polemical, sometimes collaborative, but certainly a book that can allow us to transcend certain borders okay, some boundaries, some social boundaries, and bring people together in the study of a single text. Um, and so the commentary to, to the guide by Moses of Salerno um, is very much evidence of the collaborative aspect here. As I mentioned, he was studying it with a Christian scholar. He names the Christian scholar in the commentary. Um, we don't know much more about their relationship other than what is in the commentary. Um, but I think it it still stands for, for something, perhaps a more, let's say, universalist view of the study of the guide rather than a more parochial view of the study of the guide, such as what you might get from from Zrachichen, for example, who were not so was not so interested in um, in breaching or over or, or going over um, religious and social boundaries with this book. There's another passage I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page two eighty six. You write the following: Why is esoteric commentary anomalous? After all, a number of medieval Jewish commentaries on scripture could be described as 
quote-unquote esoteric in one way or another. The core of the anomaly, however, is not that commentary per se can be esoteric. The anomaly is the status of this particular text that is being commented on. In the history of Jewish exegesis, there was a long-standing tradition of esoteric commentary on sacred texts that goes back to rabbinical texts. But until the 13th century, esoteric commentary had not been used to treat a non-sacred text such as the guide. By writing esoteric commentary on the guide, commentators were implicitly treating the text as scripture, reflecting the model of esoteric commentary with which they were most familiar. It is no small coincidence that most commentators in this study also wrote esoteric commentaries on scripture. By treating the guide as an esoteric source that requires some degree of esoteric commentary, commentators were implicitly treating the text in the same manner that Maimonides himself approached scripture in the guide. The foregoing statements mean that the tradition of commentary on the guide is unusually self-conscious, especially in its earlier stage. On the one hand, commentators were faced with, with factors that encourage greater disclosure. Among those we find, the demands of the literary form. A commentary is only useful to the extent that it reveals something about the text. The need to defend Maimonides and legitimize the study of the guide and the desire to disseminate a particular reading of the text against competing readings, such as Kabbalistic readings. On the other hand, the commentators had to, ex to contend with Maimonides' stringent exigency not to explain anything about the text at all. Can you explain what you mean here? Sure. Uh, there was a very basic problem facing anyone who wanted to write about the guide or talk about the guide at all. And the basic problem here is that the author of the guide told readers not to talk about it, not to write about it. And in the introduction to the guide, Maimonides says, whatever you learn about this book, keep it to yourself. I'm paraphrasing course, but uh, don't write anything about it. And in the translation by Samuel Ibn Tibon, the word used is don't write a perush about it, okay? Don't write an interpretation. Perush is also the word for commentary. So don't write a commentary on this book, okay? Um, so that's the basic problem. Because if you take that statement seriously, then whatever you learn of this should stay with you and you're not supposed to go out and talk about it. On the other hand, if you believe that this book, The Guide of the Perplexed, has incredibly important things to say, that it has a transformative potential, that it can um, help, uh, quote-unquote, enlighten traditional Jewish communities, that it can help people think more broadly about religion, then you have an interest in writing about the guide. So how do you reconcile these very uh, opposite 
impulses, okay? You take the guide seriously. You, If you do that, then you should listen to what Maimonides says, right? And don't write about it. But there are other reasons that say maybe you should write about it. So the solution that the commentators come up with is to write their commentaries without giving everything away. So to employ that esoteric method that is a hallmark of the Guide of the Perplexed. So you write in a way that you provide hints to the readers of the commentaries. And if you know, you know. If you don't get it, then you don't get it, right? Um, that makes it, uh, as I said, a self-reflexive kind of uh, stage of commentary on the guide. And you don't find this in later stages. You don't find this in the second, third, fourth stage, because at that point, you already had a lot of commentaries. People had already started talking about it and writing about it but not at the beginning, okay? So these commentators are going against not just a wish that Maimonides puts in the guide, but a direct order that Maimonides says to his most faithful readers. Do not talk about this. And he puts this order in the traditional rabbinical form of an oath, of a shvua, so that um, if you transgress what Maimonides is saying, then some halachic considerations might come into play here. Okay? And that's something that is directly addressed by, for example, Hillel of Verona, who is not here, was another commentator in the 13th century, um, who gives us all these reasons why the oath that Maimonides puts in the guide is not halachically binding. And therefore, we can go against it. We can sort of ignore it. Okay? Um and so the commentators are proceeding from this very uh, self-reflexive, uh, some might say even anxious place. It's just, there's an anxiety there. How do I talk about a book that doesn't want to be talked about? Okay, And that makes it a more creative tradition because they're going to have to find creative solutions to address this problem. Okay? And that's what I find so interesting about this first stage of commentary. And it's uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write about the first stage, because of this basic conundrum at the heart of the entire enterprise. Okay? To write a commentary on the guide is itself a transgressive act. It's a political act. It has ethical and social ramifications. I will add another aspect to this, which is the very form of commentary. So when you think of commentaries in general, in the abstract, a commentary that doesn't reveal anything new about the source is not a useful commentary. 
okay? If it doesn't tell you anything that you can't get by yourself in the main text, why would you need the commentary at all, okay? So to be a useful commentary, it needs to go a little bit beyond the text. It needs to excavate that text a little bit to bring things to light that perhaps you wouldn't see without the commentary, right? But again, that is in direct contradiction to what Maimonides wants. He doesn't want details of the guide necessarily to be brought to light. Um, he doesn't want the deeper secrets of the guide exposed to everybody. Okay? But if you follow that closely, then you cannot write a commentary, regardless of the oath that he places on the readers. Okay? So this makes it um, a different, it gives a different flavor to these commentaries. They are not, it's not, a, as I write, it's not a foregone conclusion that this tradition appeared at all. What we need to explain is why we have these commentaries at all. Um, it's a fact that cries out for explanation. How do you justify the fact that it's the most faithful followers of Maimonides, the ones that take him the most seriously, that transgress against his uh, very strongly worded order, his oath. Okay. And so it makes it so that the commentators have to justify their enterprise. They cannot take it for granted. Um, and they have to say exactly why they are writing this, how they are writing this, um, what happens if the wrong people read this, or is there such a thing? And in the case of Ibn Kaspi, he even goes as far as writing two commentaries for different kinds of readers, okay? Perhaps as a way of getting around this problem. Um, this level of self-reflection in the act of writing is quite rare in the Middle Ages. Um, it is a self-reflection that you see in the guide, because Maimonides, as he says, is loath to put these things into writing, except that political concerns, social concerns forced him to do it. If Maimonides doesn't write the guide, then knowledge will be lost, right? So the first transgressive act is the writing of the guide itself, putting into writing all these things that should only be transmitted orally and individually, okay? And then the second transgressive act is what the commentators do, that they then go against Maimonides' uh, order, and they put into writing the things that they think, okay, this I could perhaps bring to light. This specific thing can be explained, but they don't go all the way. And so they leave other things in the shadows. They choose to, to comment on some things, but they choose to not comment on other things. And as a reader of the commentary, you will stop and think, okay, why are you not talking about this? quite problematic thing over here. 
you Ibn Kaspi, you Ibn Falakira, you just ignore this whole problem here and you focus on this other thing, okay? So by looking at even the things that the commentators choose not to speak about, we can get an insight on the things that they thought were most problematic about the guide as well. There's another passage I'd like to ask you about pertaining to esotericism as well. You write as follows in regard to Moses of Narbonne. You write the following. This is on page 86. Moses of Narbonne goes further than Ibn Kasbi in the concealment of the secrets within contradictions. At the end of the commentary on the preface, he gives a long list of proof, te proof texts he deems contradictory without any further explanation and hardly any hints or allusions. Moses of Narbonne's esotericism comes forth even more fully in his opening sentence for this list. He writes that the examples constitute a matter for speculative study and investigation. A careful reader would recognize the sentence as a borrowing from the preface. Here, context is critical. The full sentence in the guide reads, whether contradictions due to the seventh cause are to be found in the books of the prophets is a matter for speculative study and investigation. Thus, despite explicit statements that the examples in the list are parabolic, corresponding to the third cause, and some in which these speakers are distinct, a reference to the first cause, Moses of Narbonne is implicitly ascribing at least some of the examples in the list to, to the seventh cause. What do you mean here? Can you explain and expound upon this passage for us? Can you clarify what, what is meant here? Absolutely. Uh, for context, at the end of the uh, opening matter of the guide, the preface and the introduction to the first part, uh, the Ramam talks about contradictions that are found in the Bible, and he gives you a list of seven different types of contradictions, which he calls uh, seven causes of contradictions. And as I mentioned in the passage you read, uh, the third type or third cause of contradiction is uh, because one of the statements is parabolic. It's a parable. And so it doesn't mean uh, what is indicated on the surface. It actually means something else. So there is no contradiction there because um, one of the disjuncts, one of the parts of the contradiction is not meant to be understood literally. So there is no contradiction, right? Um, the seventh type or seventh cause of contradiction in the Guide of the Perplexed is one in which, uh, as I mentioned before, is the one in, in where there is a real contradiction. So you cannot read away or excuse either disjunct, either part of the contradiction, no. There's a real contradiction there. I mentioned earlier uh, Ibn Kaspi's example of uh, that the children will not be punished for the sins of the parents. 
uh, versus the other one that says that the children will be punished for the sins of the parents. Um, the seventh cause of contradiction in the Maimonidean uh, universe of interpretation was identified as the most esoteric of all. In the guide, Maimonides says, we should not tell people in general, we shouldn't tell readers of the Bible, even the fact that there is a contradiction in the text. So you, if you are an enlightened, uh, educated, uh, attentive reader, you might notice these contradictions. Uh, but we don't, we're not going to go out and broadcast those. Uh, at the end of my uh, translated passage from Moses of Nabon's commentary, he starts that it is a matter for speculative study and investigation. And then he gives you a list of biblical proof texts of biblical verses. Okay. This beginning, it is a matter for speculative study and investigation. That's a copy from, it's copied from the guide, and it's copied from the from Maimonides' description of the seventh cause of contradiction. Okay, so he's signaling that he's about to talk about the seventh cause. Okay. And then he gives you this list, um, and he says that, okay. Some of these verses here of these biblical proof texts, um, they are like the third cause of contradiction, that they um, one side of the contradiction should be interpreted as a parable. Okay? Uh, and some should be interpreted as the fourth type of contradiction. Uh, we don't need to get into that now. But uh, by saying that some of these belong to the third and fourth types of contradictions is leaving the door open to saying that the others belong to the seventh cause of contradiction, which you are not supposed to broadcast out to the general public. That's precisely what Moses of Nabon is doing here. And one example, I have the book here, the text opened in front of me. One example is uh, Exodus 33.20, where it says that uh, no man... For there shall no man see me and live. Okay. And then Exodus 33, 23 says, My face shall not be seen. But then Numbers 12, 8 says, The similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Okay. So you have here a basic contradiction saying that no one can see the face of God. And yet, Numbers 12, 8 says that the similitude of the Lord shall he behold, he will see God's face or some aspect of God, right? Um, and here you have perhaps an example of the seventh cause of contradiction. Um, and it is a cause that Maimonides describes as being about very, quote unquote, very obscure matters. So things that are complex on their own, that require perhaps more profound study, that you don't, you don't just toss them out willy-nilly just like that. But that is what Moses of Nabon 
is doing here, okay? But he's not, uh, he's still doing it in an esoteric way because he gives you this entire list, right? He doesn't say these are all examples of the seventh cause. He says some belong to the third and the fourth cause, but he begins the paragraph, as I mentioned, with a description of the seventh cause. He never says that directly that any of these examples belong to the seventh cause, okay? I'm here constructing his interpretation based on these hints that he has laid out here for us. And this is a good example of the esoteric method that we've been talking about. Um, if I were not an esoteric writer, if I wanted to tell my readers exactly what I think, okay, then when I'm constructing this list, I would say, here is an example of the seventh cause. Uh, no man shall see me and live, and yet the other verse says he beheld God, okay? And this is what uh, the contradiction means. It's a real contradiction, and here is the real meaning of it. I would do that if I were not an esoteric writer. But because of the, the demands of the subject itself, the demands, uh, the social and political demands that we have discussed, right? Uh, we don't know who's going to be reading this text then Moses of Nabon chooses to take this esoteric route. And hence, we now can, you know, um, 600, he, was, he died in 1362, 1962, so over 600 years later, we are now having a conversation about what does Moses of Nabon mean in this passage? Which of these contradictions does he mean to say belongs to the seventh cause and cannot be explained away as not being a real contradiction. So the esoteric method is one that sort of transcends time in a sense, okay? Uh, it doesn't stay here in the text. Centuries later, we are still debating, as we are right now, uh, whether this belongs to the seventh cause or not, whether the, this is a real contradiction for Moses of Mabon or not, okay? And so I see this as a, a good indication, a good example of the possibilities of esoteric writing, the possibilities of esoteric reading, um, in that it does not stay confined to a time, to a context, even does not stay confined to the text, but that readers anywhere will still be debating here what this really means. It means, uh, and, and the significance of this is that the conversation is never finished. Maybe some people will find that frustrating. I find that incredibly dynamic um, and productive. Okay, it, it is an impulse for us to then build our own conversations around, uh, around the text of the Bible, around the guide, and around Moses of Nargon, uh, in a way that if everything was laid out on the page, yes, I agree, it would be more clear, but perhaps we might say that's no longer relevant. Okay, 
by not giving away everything, Moses of Narbonne has found a way to stay relevant, which is perhaps a clue to our own internet age and the perceived need to stay relevant. That's very much in the moment right now, right? Yeah. Um, and so there is something, I think, to the esoteric method of writing that stimulates discussion and that uh, defies the... That, that changes the relationship between time and the act and the practice of reading and time and the practice of, of interpretation of writing a commentary. Okay? Esoteric writing, in a sense, is, it's, it's timeless. Um, it invites future generations, future circles to participate in the conversation. Can you tell us anything about the other writings that these authors composed in their lifetimes, about their biblical interpretations, about their works of halachic scholarship, about ethical writings that they may have composed? Um, um, yes. The, this is a, an answer that is going to be different depending on the commentator. Uh, we don't have much else that, for example, Moses of Salerno wrote. Um, he wrote a work, a polemical work called Tanot Objections. Uh, there was a, anti, a, a Jewish Christian kind of polemics. Um, and he wrote a tshuva response uh, and some other things that don't survive. Um <clears throat> But for the other commentators, we have more of their works. Um, and they all had an interest in uh, Arabic philosophy that was part of their background. Uh, they write super commentaries on Ibn Hushd, Averroes, um, on Ibn Sina, Avicenna, um, and Especially Ibn Kaspi writes a number of biblical commentaries. Um, Ibn Falakera also perhaps wrote a commentary on the Torah. It does not survive. Um, Zerachia wrote commentaries on a number of philosophical works, but also on Proverbs and Job. Moses of Narbonne writes primarily on other philosophical works, also in the form of commentary. Okay, so these commentators, their activity around the guide is not unique. Commentary was a form that they favored in general, okay, as a method of popularizing philosophy um, amongst Jewish readers. One thing that all of these commentators have in common, and that's true for Moses of Salerno to Moses of Narbonne, uh, is that they are really not interested in halakha. They don't see themselves as uh, authorities in halakha. They have no writings about it. They evince no interest at all in it, um, other than to say that halakha is necessary as a form of discipline for the body, and that's a notion that comes from the guide of the perplexed, okay? 
um, they they all seem to agree with that. Uh, you need halakha to discipline the body, and then when that's disciplined, then you can really go on to cultivate the mind. Okay, but you can't cultivate the mind if the body is not in check, so to speak. But they are not interested at all in what would become in the Ashkenazi world. And here in North America, you know, the Jewish community is primarily Ashkenazi. They are not at all interested in talking about Jewish law. They see themselves as scholars primarily, and they are rabbis, okay? Moses of Nabon was a rabbi, Mephalakira was a rabbi, um, but it is not where they think their uh, main activities should be, okay? They were more concerned with cultivating the, let's say, the intellectual dimensions of their Jewish communities, of their readers, rather than talking about rabbinical writings or uh, or Jewish law. Okay, so we also see amongst all these commentators that they really do not engage with uh, with non-halachic rabbinical writings like Midrash. They are really not that interested. Um, Ibn Falakera does it a little bit when he identifies, for example, the Platonic version of the creation of the world, which is creation not out of nothing, but out of something preexistent. Um, he identifies that with, uh, with a rabbinical midrash about the creation of the world out of something pre-existent. Okay? He says, okay, here... It, the the rabbis and Plato agree here, okay? but it doesn't go much farther than that. Part of that is perhaps because of the guide itself. Um, Midrash is and, and halacha is not um, a major concern in the guide. It appears, but it's not really a major concern there, um, and. In some cases, or uh, shall, shall I say, in Ibn Kaspi's case, they might even have felt inadequate to talk about uh, rabbinical literature. Okay, So we have a story about Ibn Kaspi, um, and I'm not sure if this story really happened, but this is reported that uh, his wife was cooking and a meat spoon fell into a milk pot, a milk pot, and... Um, he didn't know what to do. Okay, so a problem that a lot of uh, would say average or lay people who are observant would know what to do, but uh, nowadays, but Ibn Kaspi didn't know what to do. So he takes the spoon to a rabbi, to someone else to inspect, and that rabbi makes him wait for hours just for Ibn Kaspi to get his answer. And you see in Ibn Kaspi's commentary that he actually dis has some disdain for rabbinical learning and traditional rabbinical authority. Um, there are passages I could bring up, but I, I want uh, that he talks about uh, in quite uh, ugly terms about people who learn uh, to read the Bible 
according to the rabbis or in the rabbinical way, okay? And he says, oh, that's so deficient. Um, and all that is to say that these, the, the other writings that these commentators produce uh, really reflect their tastes, their inclinations. Uh, more importantly, it reflects uh, their view of a political mission, a sense of responsibility towards their Jewish communities. Uh, responsibility that means not we need to buttress observance, traditional halachic observance, rather their view of responsibility is we need to enlighten, to develop the intellectual capacities of the Jewish people. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your subsequent research since completing this book? Yes, uh, a lot has happened here. I continue to research about medieval Jewish philosophy. Uh, most recently, I published an article about a philosopher and theologian called Hasdai Kreskas, and uh, who was uh, living in Spain uh, before the expulsion. Um, and uh, his view of uh, reward and punishment. Um, and I've also published about the guide uh, somewhat. And since this book, I have also begun to branch out into other areas. I'm still very much anchored in the medieval world and medieval sources, uh, but I have uh, started to think more about uh, history of sexuality, um, especially uh, history of sexuality in relation to, to religion. And so <clears throat> here at Yale, I teach courses now in the history of sexuality. I end up including sources from my own background um, in this kind of teaching. So in, in a course that I teach, on sexual minorities, the history of sexual minorities, we actually talk about Sa'ad Gaon and we read some of the Mishneh Torah uh, regarding same-sex practices and uh, same-sex desire. And that's where a lot of my energy has gone. And what I am working on at the moment is a history of what is called the Hebrew Mishkav Zaha. Uh, same-sex desire, same-sex practices uh, before modernity. Uh, and so I'm interested in how uh, the idea of sodomy, um, which Mishkav Zaha, which is Mishkav Zaha in Hebrew, uh, and people who practice it, uh, how is that, how has that been perceived in Jewish intellectual history um, what kinds of discourses have formed around it, okay? And we have some work about this um, with respect to rabbinical literature, uh, but not really much else. Um, you, you, There are some histories of Jewish sexuality, for example, by David Bialy uh, has one, um, and I forget some of the others, where um, there is very little discussion of same-sex 
practices or same-sex desire, right? And so um, as I am now in a gender studies department and I have this background, this expertise in medieval sources, um, this current project that I'm developing is an attempt to bring these two things together to use my existing background to to develop uh, a new branch in the history of sexuality in general and the history of Jewish sexuality. Um, and so this is a very exciting kind of project. And the chapter I'm working at at the moment is on Sadia Gaon and his book, uh, The... Uh, Beliefs and Opinions, Sefe Monot Ferradeot, and where he has, towards the end, he has a chapter that talks specifically about same-sex desire. He gives you a lot of explanations for why does it occur? Why do some people experience this? And how do we, how do we explain it? Okay. Um, and that's incredibly interesting. We really don't have that kind of discussion uh, in medieval Jewish sources. And so that's a snapshot of what I'm doing right at this moment. Thank you. And I wish you continued uh, success in your future studies. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. And thank you for, for listening. I could not be more thankful. This was a marvelous conversation. I could not be more appreciative of your thoughtfulness and generosity in all your responses today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dr. Igor D'Souza. He is a full-time lecturer and director of undergraduate studies in women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale University. He is also an associate research scholar in Judaic studies at Yale University. Today, we have been discussing his newly published book, Rewriting Maimonides, Early Commentaries on the Guide of the Perplexed, published in Berlin by de Greuter, 2018.